Hey, everybody. Before we get into the show, I wanted to let you know we've got another live show coming up. We will be back at Maya Cinemas on Thursday, May 23rd for Furiosa, the latest in the Mad Max series. We are so excited for this one. Joining me to talk about it, we've got Sam Novak, Shahab Zargari, and Tony Gonzalez. A great lineup. It's going to be an awesome movie. We are so excited to talk about it. So make sure to check the show notes. There are opportunities to win tickets. You can also buy tickets. And we hope to see you there Thursday, May 23rd, 6 p.m. at Maya Cinemas for Furiosa. Welcome to a very special episode of Piecing It Together, the podcast where we take a look at a new movie and try to figure out what movies inspired it. And today on the show is actually a director follow-up episode. We're following up last week's episode on Two Dust with an interview with the film's writer-director, Sean Snyder. Uh, Sean was so gracious to come and spend a bunch of time here on the show talking about uh, all kinds of just film geek stuff and getting into all the movies and directors that influenced him. And it's just a great conversation. I'm really excited to share it with you all. And, uh, you know, before we jump into it, I do want to remind you, please make sure if you're not already to make sure you are subscribed to Piecing It Together on your podcast app of choice. And also follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And while you're at it, join our Facebook group. Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, a movie discussion group. So with that said, uh, you've already listened to last week's episode on Two Dust, which means that you've already watched the movie. You should, because we will be getting into spoilers. Uh, so now that you've done all that, let's get into this conversation. All right, so with us right now is Sean Snyder, the writer-director of Two Dust. Sean, thank you so much for being here. Um, it is my pleasure. I'm very excited for the conversation. I, I'm very excited myself, too. Uh, as you heard in our previous episode, um, I, I really, really loved your film. It, it's one of my favorite movies this year so far. So um, I was just really glad that you were able to uh, do this interview. And it, it's it's such a unique movie that talking about influences and inspiration, um, it, it, it's kind of a funny one to get to talk to a director on because... Uh, there's so much originality involved here. Uh, you know, I guess, you know, the first thing I wanted to talk about, you know, and we're, we're going to get into some of those inspirations and influences and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, for, for such a unique film as to dust, what, you know, where did the, the initial spark, what would you say it came from when you started, uh, you know, coming up with this thing? Well, it, it, like it merges together a whole bunch of latent threads throughout my my life, um, the earliest seeds uh, come from my own experiences with with grief and loss. I lost my mom mm -hmm. 10 years ago, uh, mm -hmm. last September. And I come from a reformed Jewish background, which certainly isn't a Hasidic background. Um, sure. And yet there's a very specific uh, rigid timeline for, for grief and rituals that offer sort of guideposts through that process. And I've always found um, personally and and uh, objectively, those to be very wise and and um, 
and profound and intuitive, while they're ancient, they sort of understand our, our psychological process and they actually allow for this period of excessive grief. Um, and yet, uh, from the confines of, of your own grief, and I think I came to realize, especially with, with the loss of my mom, that, that grief is highly specific. Um, it's as specific as the relationship between the individual who's been lost and, and the individual that's left behind. Um, you can have all of the rubrics and, and guideposts in the world, but at the end of the day, you're left with the specificity of your grief. And it, yeah. it spills outside of those boundaries and it needs to be allowed to express itself um, either in conversation with those rituals or uh, outside of those rituals. Uh, and the movie's just sort of this... I guess very personal uh, defense of of the idiosyncrasies of of grief and healing, um, and uh, in a very um, meta sort of way, you know, <laughs> the, the movie is my own process of of healing. Shmuel buries sure. big pigs, and I make a movie about a guy burying pigs. <laughs> there you go. You know? I mean, that, that that's a good way, I'd imagine, to uh, to deal with things is to make a movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. certainly gets your mind off of things, uh, I would imagine. Um, you know, and, and 10 years on, you know, my, my grief persists outside of those boundaries of for seven days, you do this and 30 days, you do this. And one year later, you do this and, and still needs its expression. And I and I write with a with a co-writer who I imagine will, you know, be able to bring up uh, within our conversation. And, and uh, his name is Jason Begay. He's the the Albert to my Shmuel, the, the Goy to my, uh, at least cultural Jew. And, um, uh, and in very many ways that, that collaboration, you know, is reflected in, in their relationship as well. Right on, right on. Yeah. I, I also, you know, come from a reformed Jewish background and, uh, of course the, you know, Hasidics were around, you know, growing up, uh, I, I was born in Brooklyn and grew up in Pennsylvania. I was always back into New York all the time. Um, and yeah, you know, dealing with grief and I, you know, I actually myself haven't had a major grief situation to deal with. However, the, the Jewish faith, there seems to be so many uh, lessons and so many, just, just so many, so many teachings and things that, you know, we're, we're given that are supposed to help with that thing. But like you said, at the end of the day, it, you know, it's a very personal thing and uh you know there's no there's no definitive answer to uh how to deal with it and so you know it it's it's cool that what you do with this film is take it to a place of uh you know just where that search for answers could possibly lead somebody if they were uh you know really having a hard go of it when when it came down to that time that hard time in their life yeah and there there is this inherent um i guess irony in in the film um, that maybe as we were writing it, we, we considered, is this problematic or does it make it more interesting that, uh, you know, a proper Jewish burial is almost as green as they come. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Judaism, when it comes to sort of its relationship to death is very humane yeah. <laughs> and hu humanistic. And, and as you said, gives, gives this sort of roadmap and this, this guidance and, and yeah, you know, a, a, some permission within those boundaries and yet, nonetheless, uh, grief is specific, you know? <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, and, and, you know, and another thing that makes the movie unique is how it's, it's you know, blending this story of grief with also, you know, basically at its core, a, a, you know, a, a, 
wacky buddy comedy and then also uh you know a kind of fish out of water story and uh, you know i'm just wondering before we start jumping into some puzzle pieces uh as we call the inspirations here on the show um was it always uh a film that you envisioned as kind of blending all of these kind of genres together or were those things that came together as you were starting to figure out well you know what exactly happens to this guy it's a it's a combination of all of those things. Um, as soon as I had the idea, uh, I knew that it was darkly comic, mm-hmm. in terms of at least my own warped sense of humor. I didn't necessarily <laughs> know that that would that that would translate. Um, and uh, uh, when I when I brought it to to Jason, his first reaction was. You know, and this sort of starts to get into the puzzle pieces, right? He was like, "This is a Val Luton movie. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is the Body Snatchers. This is B horror." Um, right, right. And it was very fun to to lean into those things, and then uh, essentially realizing as well as as this relationship started to develop, and and as the writing process pushed that relationship together, that we did have this this buddy comedy on our hands, and that leaning into that, um, sure. Uh, was valuable and and you know you talk about i love this idea of your show and what it does and and um i see art as a as a conversation and and film specifically and some people see things as theft and i see it as you know honoring (laughs) your your influences and standing on the shoulders of giants and entering into conversation with the medium and, and what came before and when you get to play with those influences and flip them and subvert them and, and look at them from inside out. I, I, there's a joy there. And this is a movie um, about juxtapositions, mm-hmm. the, the sacred and the profane. And um, these two characters, specifically the highbrow and the lowbrow, and, yeah, right. and, and the ways in which I think we, we tested and pushed the limits of what we knew was inherent in the material, uh, delighted and surprised us as we were writing. I mean, the degree to which we we were laughing out loud as we were writing the film, um, at least with each other, uh, surprised us. And, mm. and then even more so when the audience started laughing along, which you don't know for a long time, <laughs> if that's going to happen. Um, <laughs> yeah, for and sure. I, yeah, I think it, it, it surprised us and, and, and delighted us, but I think more at its core, it wasn't this sort of cheap way of approaching it. It, it was, you know, I see humor as being spiritual and that laughter as being cathartic, not only in dealing with the gruesome realities of, of our, you know, our biological ends, but also in terms of dealing with grief. And, um, and there was also very much a Jewish ethos to, to that gallows humor and, and the spiritual, uh, reclaiming and, and empowerment that happens when you're able to, to laugh alongside those emotions. Yeah. We're good at finding humor in pretty much anything. Yeah, I think. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, I'm really glad to hear you say that about, uh, you know, about, you know, standing on the shoulder of giants and, and just like looking at inspiration as a good thing, because like, that's something that I always wonder about with this show, you know, um, you know, do filmmakers want to discuss their, uh, their influences and, you know, or do they, or they're just like, shh, don't tell people, you know? Um, <laughs> and, uh, but you know, it, I've found that so far, you know, a lot of the filmmakers I've talked to, um, they, they really are interested in discussing the things that they love. And, uh, and I think that's really cool. And then like this year alone, I mean, we, we just had uh, two movies that very clearly and obviously showed their uh, influences with um, uh, Jordan Peele's Us and uh, Gaspar Noe's Climax that have like 
like little Easter egg showing their actual influences right there on the screen. And so it's an interesting thing to see, uh, to see how filmmakers uh, react when you start talking about the influences. I think it's a, it's a joy to be able to, um, and, and, you know, we, we do the junket and it's a privilege to do the junket. And, 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 and when you're talking at Q and A's and um, a lot of the stuff that comes up is emotional and thematic based and the film mm. geek inside me wants to talk about those things and not in an egotistical way that says, look what I'm referencing, <laughs> like, yeah, right. but in a way that, that <laughs> wants to in, engage that love of the art form. I don't know. You can't get, uh, you look at Scorsese and, and I've heard um, our, one of our producers, Emily Mortimer has, has had the privilege of working with him. And, and she says, he just delights in that stuff on set. Uh, mm. he, he owns it. He's like, I'm doing this angle because that's what Hitchcock would do, <laughs> you know? Nice. And it's not, again, it's not, it's not pretentious. It's, it's, uh, it's the childlike and joyful and pure. Um, so it's, I'm excited to be able to, to talk about it. And, and it's interesting to see, I mean, you look at somebody like P.T. Anderson's trajectory, who in his very early on his career was very forthcoming, you know, wants to get on the phone with Jonathan Demme and say, look what I did. <laughs> like I yeah, copied right? your shot and has become <laughs> a little bit more um, quiet and mysterious. Uh, but you still get him in an interview. And, and I mean, you think about inherent vice and he's just, he's just a, a kid talking about film noir. So, yeah, yeah, just film nerds making films. Yeah, so um, I'm I'm <laughs> excited. I actually, with all the talking that I've done about this film, haven't been able to engage it in 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 this way. So I'm looking forward. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, you know, with that said, I, I guess let's get into some of these puzzle pieces. Starting off, the first one that I think both Chris and I, Chris Cranock, who was my co-host for the episode, uh, brought up was a serious man. Uh, the Coen Brothers film, which was just filled with Jewish mysticism, and uh, you know, really mined that that whole the whole Jewish thing for your uh, for comedy, while also being a great uh, you know great little mystery of like you know what exactly is going to happen next in this movie. You really kind of don't know where it's going to go. And I feel that that's something that could you know very easily be said for Two Dust as well. Uh, a movie where you just really don't know uh, at any point what's going to happen next, and you're just kind of along for this crazy ride um, that's just filled with all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, yeah, well, well, the Coen brothers are 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 huge for a lot of reasons that that we, we can talk about, and the ser a serious man is is obviously huge. Uh, it is, mm -hmm. you know, I I heard in 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 your episode, it is the first time I heard about a Dybbuk, um <laughs> as well. Uh, and then sort of I, you know, followed that thread into the world of Isaac Bashevis Singer and the actual folk folklore of the Dybbuk and landing it yeah. at the 1937 film, <laughs> sort of in the process <laughs> of, of writing and developing to dust and sort of finding kind of the layers and layers of that mythology, which are very, very beautiful. Uh, mm. But obviously that, that spiritual search, that existential uh, nature of that movie, of, of just needing answers and, and wanting answers. And I think that... that I don't know, one of the huge things about that film too was sort of um, permission to not be expository. I think mm. that that movie, it's obviously so so Jewish and it doesn't stop to explain its Jewishness, sure. but its Jewishness also isn't, the film manages to be universal through that specificity. And I don't think that the film um, uh, excludes people who sure. don't get you know, the added texture. Um, 
and writing with Jason, who who is is not Jewish, it was also very useful to you know to have that barometer on. Well, I need to understand this, and we need to find a way a way to explain this element of the Judaism that that doesn't feel, or the mysticism that doesn't feel expository. But this thing I don't need to understand, and that even came down to to uh, sprinkling Yiddish throughout the film and what needed mm. to be explained and what needed to just be. Uh, mystifying or an added yeah. laugh for somebody, you know, for the 70 year old who happens to get that. I think it's also great having Matthew Broderick's character as kind of almost a uh, a guide, uh, you know, an entryway in for anybody who isn't necessarily catching things. They could just, you know, be as lost as he is. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it does wait about, you know, 20 minutes to, to get him into the movie but you are thinking about the reality of this world and, and, and he's the only one who's allowed to ask questions believably. Shmuel can't stop to explain aspects of his faith to his rabbi. <laughs> you know, and, and his rabbi can, can allude to things that obviously set the, the, the viewer up, but the, the rabbi also can't be over explicit about that lest it enter the realm of unrealistic because he should know these things already. Sure, um, absolutely. Uh, and then Albert, you know, a lot of that that culture clash, fish out of water stuff that that happens with with Albert allows us to uh, have a character reacting to the uh, being mystified, <laughs> and us be and he, him being an avatar for us. Sure, yeah, in that way. Um, and I, you know, to, to to sort of use a serious man and, and as a way to leap into other Cohen brother influences, I. Um, I think that we we exist in perhaps the same cinematic universe, but a very different moral universe than the Coen mm. Brothers. I think that that the the God in in into dust or uh, which I guess is us as writers <laughs> are a bit kind <laughs> a bit kinder and and perhaps like all of the transgressions that that Shmuel makes are sort of being helped along. <laughs> by sure, yeah, he's not he's not getting punished too much by the world. Yeah. Um, uh, and I would really hone in on on the Coen brothers tonally, and and I, I've always loved them. But what I've studied about them is, and they're masters of this. You know, when you're trying to do a, a tonal tightrope, the holy grail isn't well. It's funny, and then it's serious. It's that wait, the funniest thing is the most tragic thing. Sure. Um, and maybe it's tragic the first time you watch it, and it's funny the second time you watch it. Um, in retrospect for, you know, encapsulated in the whole and contextualized in the whole film or vice versa. It's a, it's a laugh out loud guffaw the first time you watch it. And then you realize, wait, that thing that I laughed at is actually is the saddest thing in the film. Right. right. And I don't, well, I found I found one thing about the film is that, uh, and I'm talking about to dust here is, uh, it's, it's one of those movies where even if you're, not specifically laughing at the scene, you may just find yourself just starting to laugh at just like, wow, this is just, this is crazy. <laughs> you know, and you just kind of give yourself like almost like a, a nervous laughter of like, God, what, what is, what are they going to get themselves into? You know? Yeah. And, and that, that laughter, it's been very interesting to, and a privilege to be able to watch it with different audiences and to see, you know, does the laughter start at the first quote? Does the laughter start when he tears his coat? Uh, mm. or does the laughter start, you know, 25 minutes in at the first bacon joke? It's like, um, <laughs> right. and this idea of, you know, these jokes are, they're, they're groaners. Some of them, they're dad humor, they're Jewish humor, they're Borscht Beltian, <laughs> like <laughs> in, in the lowest hanging fruit sort of way occasionally. But that's, 
number one, I think that the, that the idea of the humor is that it feels emotionally grounded and it feels real, even if it's surreal and slightly that sure. it feels emotionally real. And also that it's serving this thematic purpose of, of catharsis. Like we're going to look at some pretty dark things. And sometimes from grief, you need that, uh, that forced laugh as a, as an entryway into healing. Um, I sometimes get to tell the story about coming back from my mom's funeral and, uh, my dad putting the TV on and, and Peter Sellers, the party is on TV. <laughs> and he's like, you have to come and watch this. And we're sitting and we're watching Peter Sellers, you know, slapsticky <laughs> zaniness and, and laughing through tears and how healing that was. And, yeah. um, uh, and, and I'll also say about the, you know, then sometimes that laughter is uncomfortable laughter. Sometimes it's, it's a, a wry smile. Sometimes it's, it's a, a release valve um, mm. into dust and sort of where it, where it plays. And I, and I will, you know, you ask about where did this come from and how instantly did we know that it would be all of these things juxtaposed in, in this way. And it was actually through the research into um, both forensic anthropology. I didn't know how to body decompose and I assumed there'd be a pretty standard answer to it. And you go uh -huh. down the rabbit hole of this bizarre field of science um, and you're trying to honor that reality. And, and then, you know, I, I didn't, I assumed as a reformed Jew who had studied religion as an undergrad that I knew what, what orthodoxy was, uh, just it was what I knew, but more serious. And I couldn't have been more wrong and was beautifully humbled by, by that journey into the orthodox world and then into the mysticism as well. And when you start putting these two things in conversation and honoring their reality, it actually creates more absurdity. Like, yeah. okay, there's a Hasidic man and forensic anthropology uses pigs. Like, how yeah. can you not lean into that? Perfect. Yeah, it is. A, it's a perfect combination. And you know what? I, I, uh, before we move on to the next puzzle piece, um, I do want to ask about that. Uh, the whole pig angle is that something that came out of the screenplay, or did did you um did you already like think of that while thinking about the breaking down of the body and things like that? Like, was that something that was in the back of your mind that? wasn't necessarily for the screenplay or did it come from like figuring out the journey for these people? It came through figuring out the journey through these people. And, and, um, we were, uh, we, we were able to incubate the project through grants from the Alfred P Sloan foundation, which is this, I only ever had heard of them through NPR or PBS. Um, mm -hmm. they fund scientific research, but they have this small and beautiful, well-funded, uh, wing that funds science and the arts. And so we were getting grants to develop the film because of the scientific angle. And it felt, um, really kind of, I don't have a particularly scientific bent, but to honor that science and in honoring that science and unearthing those things like pigs, like body farms, things that I didn't know existed. It, it you know, yeah. I was, I, I, I knew he would, when the idea first occurred to me, I knew he would uh, try to decompose things <laughs> or watch things decomposing, <laughs> but I didn't know that it would be a pig yet. Sure. There you go. Um, all right. Well, let's uh, let's go to another puzzle piece, and I'm going to keep it uh, keep it on another funny one before we move on to some serious ones. Uh, the film Swiss Army Man, which is another uh, movie that deals with grief, uh, more so mental illness, but they kind of go hand in hand, uh, and it deals with it in a very uh, a funny, a sweet, a weird way, um, and it's also uh, a, another very unconventional buddy film really when you come down to it um had you thought of swiss army man have you seen swiss army Man? i know it's not as big of a movie i have uh, i have seen it and i think it came out after we wrote the script um okay 
um, I don't remember the exact timing, but but folks were pointing us in that direction. Oh, you should yeah, watch this. Yeah. You know, I think that it was just starting to get its buzz. Um, and the thing about that film, and, and there's obviously a whole bunch of other influences in 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 this regard. Um, it is, you know, I loved I love divisive films. You hear about mm-hmm. you know folks walking out of that movie. Oh yeah, and folks staying and. Um, and can you handle these deep topics with fart jokes? Sure. Um, and I come back to that humor as profound and humor as spiritual. And some people will see it as immature or juvenile. Um, but I do think, I mean, a fart, I guess, being a literal release valve. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, like, there's something beautiful. And I look at, the, at, at movies that I loved growing up that are maybe spiritual influences onto dust, if not, ex- not explicit ones. And those films that you're able to say, I just watched that. There was just a fart joke, but now I'm feeling this pervasive sense of melancholy or sure. sadness. And, you know, let alone, you know, then there's the intellectual level. Then perhaps there's the social commentary level. But, but for me, it's, it's the ability to, to, I just watched this thing, this combination of influences. I laughed and, and then somehow I'm crying. Um, and the ability to flip that script and and have it feel organic, and again, not a roller coaster necessarily of I laughed and then I cried. I laughed and cried mm. simultaneously. Um, and it's sort of the, it's the trickster, like you know that the 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 archetypal figure of the trickster that comes in and not you know to turn things on its head for a spiritual end, <laughs> like yeah. And so I I I, I wouldn't say that Swiss Army. Man is an influence. It, it didn't coincide chronologically to be able to be one, but I but I would say I feel we share influences. Sure, absolutely. They come from a similar place yeah. of of dealing dealing with serious topics, but with very you know funny uh, methods. Um, all right. Well, uh, moving on to another one, then a uh, much more serious film. Uh, Darren Aronofsky's The Fountain, which is a movie in which a man searching for uh, for answers relating to death uh it, it drives him to uh to craziness and uh while uh Shmuel doesn't exactly go crazy necessarily it certainly leads him in a uh you know a pretty wild journey along the way uh trying to answer these questions for himself i have i have sadly never seen the fountain and it's been one of those uh long time get around to <laughs> watching mm-hmm. um uh but there is uh there's absolutely something of of that that ethos and and obviously if you're pulling in Darren Aronofsky and the Hasidic world there's there's this pie element sure. as well um and this idea of the ways in which you know you, you think of, you think about pie and I guess you think about the way that to dust um you know um graphs the religion over the science and and makes metaphors out of both of them while honoring the actuality of them and 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 i mean i guess you think about pi and it's like this kabbalistic mysticism in the hands of the 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 purely spiritual being versus in the hands of uh the mathematician versus in the hands of the wall street uh you know the the folks trying to hack wall street and it's in Mm. nature and uh and that I think that that pervades other Darren Aronofsky films as well. Yeah, um, absolutely. It's funny you're mentioning that because I had never thought about that before. But that theme, you know, kind of uh, going between those two films, uh, absolutely, it, it's an absolute great fit there. Yeah, and um, and yes, I 
we can have a follow up um, phone call about about uh, the fountain. <laughs> nice yeah yeah definitely a movie to seek out um so uh yeah next puzzle piece then would be hal ashby's being there uh which is you know of course uh you know classic fish out of water type of story and uh one that chris brought up um i surprisingly i i'm i mentioned on the episode i'm sure i saw it but like when i was a kid i haven't seen it in so many years i barely remembered it but um you know it's a classic this is my, and I don't know that I'll, that I'll, uh, um, my answer will be exactly what you guys saw in it in that connection. Um, but my favorite thing about that film, um, is the walking on water scene at the end. Mm. The final shot is he walks away and he walks on water. And, mm. um, uh, it might have been Roger Ebert. You know, there's the thumbs up and thumbs down Roger Ebert, and then there's the true cinephile. <laughs> Roger yeah. Ebert. And I, <laughs> I love the cinephile Roger Ebert. Uh, I think he was talking about people, people are saying, is that real? Is it a dream? Is it supposed to be real? Is he Jesus-like? Is he mystical? And, and he said something, he's like, the movie forces you to accept that as real within the context of the film. Sure. Um, the movie doesn't give you any other suggestions that it wouldn't be real. Uh, so you have to accept that at, at face value. But then you sort of enter into this idea of, of um uh like of cinema as dream right. um and so that you know what i what i do take away from from being there um is that that idea and it's sort of uh, to dust in this way um and we'll get into the other things that you had named as as puzzle pieces along this vein as well um uh it crosses over into i wouldn't say it's full-fledged fever dream but it is this blurred line between the gravitas of 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 his grief in the beginning and end and of sort of the daytime scenes and the absurdity of the nighttime scenes and sure. it, and it crosses over into um something that feels more like folklore and and cinematic mythology um and uh the dream of grief and it's like the movie lives in that ambiguity in the way that that last scene in being there does and purposefully so. It's not the type of Wizard of Oz thing where, oh, you, they have to wake up to know that it was all a dream. <laughs> right, like, right. No, film is a dream and cinema is the language of dreams. And that's why you can have films that, that um, uh, I don't know, you think about The Prophet or something that are ultra realistic and throw in one element of magical realism. Yeah, because, I mean, it's a, that's a, a, a inherent um thing about cinema is that you can do that and you know especially for a story that's dealing with things uh that you know don't necessarily have easy answers it's like why not go there and and try things and and do things that are going to make it uh make it unique yeah and that make it unique that that add flavor but that also feel purposeful I, i you know i feel like yeah the movie the movie asks you to 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 treat this as reality to some extent, but it also asks mm-hmm. you to look at the, the subjective emotional um, elements of it all as well. And we've had audiences walk out, which I wear as a badge of honor. I don't want to offend anybody's sensibilities, or, yeah. but the movie is asking us to look at dark things and, and everyone has a very different threshold for that. Whether it's, I don't want to watch a, a, a video of a pig decomposing, um, a film reel of pig decomposing, or I don't think that death should be treated with this sense of humor. Uh, and 
I, I would find that 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 people who took the movie at the most literal level were the ones who f- wound up being the most offended by it or not getting it in the way that we would hope that one would get it. But I but I spoke to a man um, was at a Jewish film festival in in South Florida where I'm where I happen to be from, and he says I thought it felt like like the external expression of this man's inner experiences. Hmm. I was like, yeah, <laughs> like, and it's been being given permission to. Um, to do that, you know, the, the, uh, and, and it, and it transcends into cinema and the catharsis of cinema and the catharsis allowed in, in mixing those things and those languages and moving between them in ways that feel obscured in the way that a dream feels. Uh, and so, so yeah, I don't want to preempt your, your next puzzle pieces, but I'm very excited about this one because you guys honed in on not just Jarmish, but down by law specifically, which nice, is, nice. which is, I mean, it made me giddy when I heard you guys say that because that is direct. <laughs> like that is, <laughs> that is in the DNA and, and you, you know, not in a, in, in sort of a pat on the back. Like I've never heard anybody call that out that, that directly. And it felt, I felt recognized and, and gotten. <laughs> Chris um, is going to be so happy that you're saying that right now. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's obviously these, these Jarmushian, you know, paces and tones and, and very specifically the, the strange odd couplings. Um, mm. But, but down by law specifically, and it does this similar thing to that last scene in being there. It's um, they never wake up from the dream. And and obviously their circumstances are strange and there's an oddness to the world in these characters. Um, mm. But you're asked to treat it very realistically. Like these these three weird guys end up in, in a trail cell together. And yeah. then you look at the the escape and they're casually talking about, Roberto Benigni's casually talking about a hole in the fence <laughs> that he found <laughs> or something or other. And the next thing you see is this very noir German expressionistic shot of them running down a tunnel. It just like they just <laughs> escaped. You're just supposed to buy into that, yeah. and everything that happens afterwards in that way. You know, we're talking about moral universes with with the Cohen brothers. Um, th- like the world's, you know, God seems to be smiling upon their escape. <laughs> like somehow <laughs> they get away from the cops and the barking dogs, and somehow Roberto Benigni finds the love of his life. <laughs> like in an hour at the end of the film. And there are these strange echoes of that cabin that they find um, uh, being exactly like the jail cell. And it feels like the, the using cinema, that like the prisoner escape genre uh, and turning it into a dream and it becomes the dream of escape. But it's not, again, it's not the Wizard of Oz where they have to wake up at the end because you don't have to wake up from a movie or in the context yeah, right. of a movie. And, and then all of that ease which which they escape and even some of the, the conflicts that they, that they have, but the beauty of kind of the heaven that they find, um, at least specifically uh, Benini, um, is beautiful and melancholic and, and profound. And, and it's a shift that happens in the middle of the movie that, that just asks you to, to run with it and, and buy in with it and, and not question it because it's real within the context of the film but clearly right. it's it's poetry absolutely and, and you know not not to not to heap you know so much flattery and praise here but, but um but that you know to your direction i mean you're 
that's why I think people are able to, you know, not ask those questions and just go along with with everything within your film as to this being a, a world and this being what these characters are going through and just, you know, being totally, totally down to go on that journey. And and um, I fully respect that there's folks who don't buy an early and you know, and don't get the movie and, and either it didn't do anything for them or, or it offended their sensibilities, but it, but yeah, if you're, you know, I, I, I do love that divisiveness and the conversation that it creates. And if you're willing to buy in, then you do go along because there is a, uh, hopefully an emotional and thematic reality. To, the best movies are divisive when it comes yeah. down to it. Um, <laughs> and those surreal, those, that surrealism and, and, and the idea in terms of, of leaning into these genre tropes and leaning into these influences. The thing that Jason and I always ask ourselves is you, you can't do that cheaply. If it's just mm -hmm. a wink, then it's self-congratulatory um, intellectual exercise. But the question is, is, is there a thematic resonance? Is there an emotional resonance? Why are we mashing up horror and comedy and, and bacon jokes and <laughs> philosophical spiritual meditations. And it, and there has to be a purpose and a reason. Um, and, and more than anything else, uh, emotionality, I think mm -hmm. to be able to justify doing that thing or else it, it becomes a cheap trick. I completely, I completely agree with that. And, and it's a, it's a fine line, but you know, obviously I feel like uh, I feel like you rode that line really well. Thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> um, so I'm going to bring up one more of the puzzle pieces we had talked about, and then I'll ask you if there's any that we, uh, you know, left out of our conversation that you have in mind. Um, and that is 2001: A Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick. Um, and the reason why I brought it up is, uh, you know, obviously the film is a search for answers. Um, as much for the the story itself and the characters as it is for its filmmaker, and I feel like uh, you know, obviously, you you've mentioned earlier about your own experiences with grief, and uh, you know, it feels like To Dust is uh, you know an exercise in in you know looking for answers, but in a a world and a film where you're not going to get easy answers, there is never going to be easy answers, but you still go on that journey anyway. Um, I, you, when you guys threw that into the mix, it was, uh, such an honor to hear that. I mean, Jason and I love Kubrick and, and talk about him. And, and it's funny because the, the, the project that we're working on now, we've really thought a lot about 2001 in no direct mm. obvious way, but as sort of a spiritual, uh, predecessor, right? In, oh, I'm excited. Um, in, <laughs> but, but, um, yeah, well, for one, you know, I, I'm incredibly squeamish and I, I don't like to to face these realities. And the movie was this personal therapy, not only processing my mom's grief, but my own existential fears and concerns and 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 sort of throwing the gauntlet down to myself to be able to to look at those taboos and try to find the beauty in them. So it's mm. certainly, you know, the fact that I feel like I don't know, it's 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 exciting and, and an honor and it's the beauty of, of art to be able to enter the conversation and put this out into the world. But if the film was only just my own personal therapy, that would have been enough. That strangeness mm. that, that when you do get vulnerable and dark and weird and throw out the unsavory, strange thoughts that you have, that that's actually yeah. when you tap into universality is exciting, not just in a self-congratulatory way, but in a, that's the beauty of art. 
Um, Absolutely. Uh, so why make a movie if it isn't a personal quest or exploration or, or journey or that you are asking those questions? And I do think that um, I don't like didactic films. Um, I, I like films that are about the questions and not about the answers. Um, mm. And uh, that... And and I think it is a very Jewish thing as well. It's the it's the the Jewish dialectic that that a question is answered with a question is answered with a question. <laughs> um, oh yeah. And that ultimately it lands. And and as you say, with two thousand one, and I don't know that that we were explicitly thinking about this at this place of mystery and humility. And mm-hmm. however far, you know, science can take you. However far religion can take you. However far one's own grief can take them. Like like. You have to be, whether, you know, it's the outer reaches of religion or, or science or the inner reaches of a, of a human heart, like, like you can do all the math and all the algorithms and all the working and all the attempt to explain, but at the end of the day, you're, you're left with mystery and that mystery is daunting and, and terrifying, um, for some folks, but it's also beautiful and profound and spiritual to just surrender to that mystery. Right. right. Um, and I think that, that you know, one of the things that I was finding and, and, and that we were exploring and I was exploring and, and learning and asking those questions for myself and to dust are the ways in which uh, religion and science end at the same place. And it's the more you, the more you know, the more you don't know. Um, right, right. And that again can frustrate people to no end but but that they you know that that albert and schmuel archetypally representing the things that they represent right like like recognize that about the the secular and 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 the spiritual right um and then at the end yeah you just i think you guys had 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 nailed it like like you can backwards engineer the science to match the religion and to graft one over the other but the at the end of the day it's about what you need as an individual <laughs> yeah. to survive. Yeah. And perhaps it's all just some grand uh, um, MacGyvering of, of, oh, you know, a buffet of this scientific fact works with this religious fact. And I'm going to, I'm going to patch them together to justify the thing that I just need to do emotionally. <laughs> like, right. Right. I just, I just need my answer that I already have. And, 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 <laughs> and find some, need- yeah. And find some yeah. rationalization to act yeah. on that. um so yeah i you know i you just have to marvel at the end of 2001 i got to see it in 70 last year uh on my birthday and it was a joy because um it was in in new york at at the village east and spielberg was coming out of the previous screening (laughs) and I mean, I'm, now I'm derailing off of to dust and just film geeking out, but... Um, oh, that's fine. But he... Uh, I don't know. Spielberg has to have his own theater and could have access to his own 70 millimeter print and has probably seen 2001, 2001 times. And oh, yeah. yet felt it was this cinematic event that he needed to see again in this way in a theater. Um, and yeah, you just, you know... What I love about that that movie is you get to the end and you can try to explain it. Why is why is there Victorian art? 
<laughs> in, in, you know, this white room at the ends of the galaxies that might be God's house. Who the, who knows? But like, like, no, it's, it's actually crafting its own religion. It's supposed to mystify you and it's supposed to humble you by, by mystifying you in the way that the mysteries of the universe do. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And it doesn't, you don't, you know, you don't need to crack it. It's not supposed to nope. be. That's the be- the best kind of movie. You you're you're never gonna fully crack. You're you're gonna have your theories. You're gonna have your you know all your different readings. But uh, at the end of the day, you got so much to uh, just keep going back to. Yeah. and keep looking at it. You know. Uh, so uh, yeah, that that brings me to the end of the pieces that I was specifically gonna bring up. Do you have any uh, you know specific influences or inspirations that that affected you in the making of this that we didn't talk about that you would like to bring up? Um, I, uh, I don't want to give a shout out. I know that you, that you guys, you know, we're talking about the, the animation, um, and you specifically, you know, brought, uh, brought up Tim Burton. And I feel like Mm -hmm. that's the, you know, that's the nine-year-old in me. Um, (laughs) I saw a Beetlejuice, um, at a summer screening in New York on a big screen years ago and, and forgot how many times I must have seen that movie as a kid and how that movie m- probably made me want to make movies. Um, right. and it's interesting cause you go back to your earliest influences and the ones that are somehow embarrassing, like, Oh, that was a juvenile love. And, uh. and sometimes it's actually going back to those places. I was a, <laughs> I was a singer songwriter, uh, perhaps somewhere in me, I still am, but it's what I pursued throughout my, my twenties. I remember somebody referencing that in terms of songs. It's like, go to those, embar- go to John Denver, like go to those earliest places right. that made me fall in love with music <laughs> that are syrupy and saccharine. And there's going to be some truth there that made you want to do this thing that you have to honor. And one of the things that I love about, about to dust is in my short film work, there was always this darkly comic element um, to it, but I think I was trying to ground it in, in, in realism and character study, you know, especially as I was working my way uh, through NYU, which is an amazing institution, but there's also this NYU ethos of indie, what indie film means. And um, it, with, with the inspiration of To Dust, like all of these old influences came flooding back. I'm like, I can be funny and I can tap my inner Tim Burton and all of these things <laughs> that I loved about, about film and that brought me into film and then merged with the life experience that I had of losing my mom and as a 35 year old and being able to meet that, that gravitas and melancholy with those childish obsessions and find Mm. the profundity in them in putting them together, you know, and and to dust aloud, like all of these, you know, I said it in the beginning, these latent threads to rush into this, this film, whether it's genre influences and tonal mashups. And so, yeah, so, so I, you know, I wrote, the first draft of the script, you know, when I was thinking about that, that toe image, it literally says in stop motion fashion. Um, and I went searching the, uh, um, the internet and thereby the world for, uh, uh, a collaborator to execute those things. And I stumbled across, um, this incredible artist, Robert Morgan, um, Mm -hmm. who, who's in the UK and on a, whim and a wing and a prayer sent him the script and and he responded to it and we entered this year plus long collaboration to this day we've never been in the same room or the same country Mm. it was all over skype but we know each other's dark and strange souls and (laughs) um 
uh, I urge any of your listeners to to dig up his work online because he's obviously digging from that tradition uh, of of stop motion as well of the grotesque, and he has these beautiful philosophies of the ways in which why stop motion suits itself to horror because it's like the animation of inanimate objects and and the uncanny valley that happens with oh, yeah. that, um, you know, and it's exactly what to dust is about. He's reanimating a dead thing. Um, and his approaches too. he uses life casts of real body parts in, in his own work. But the thing about his work was that, that it was, there was always this, there's this melancholy that, that pervades it. And, um, and even in his most surreal work, there's a, there is this emotional truth and this dreamlike nature to it. Uh, and so, um, you know, he, he became a collaborator and, uh, uh, de facto influence just based on his own um, expertise and his own voice. That's bringing cool. those things to life. Um, so Robert Morgan, uh, do, do check him out. And I think he's in the works on his own first feature now as well. And I cannot wait to see it. Oh, nice. Yeah. I'm going to have to look him up because uh, I, I am a big fan of stop motion. And yeah, I mean that, that, that intersection between stop motion and horror is just, it's such a perfect uh, place for it. I, I had a, uh, a stop motion music video made for one of my, uh, one of my darker tracks and it, it's just, I love it so much. Like just watching that kind of uh, creepy dark thing happening and, and that kind of animation, it's just, it's the coolest. Yeah. Thing. And I, um, Again, derail into into film geekness. Um, I have a four year old daughter, and and it's the biggest, you know, one of the biggest joys to get to introduce her to film. And we literally went mm-hmm. to um, see Missing Link a couple weeks ago in Leica animation. Mm-hmm. It's you know, it's it's beautiful, but it's very pristine. Um, yeah, yeah. And we just went uh, to see at the Museum of the Moving Image in New York for spring break. They do this great kids programming, um, Curse of the Were Rabbit, Wallace and Gromit, Ardman. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And the difference of that, where it's like you see the thumbprints in the clay, and when that stuff is being put on a big screen, oh yeah, I think that that that, if anything, is my biggest frustration with with the evolution of Tim Burton. I'm like, why why the CGI? I want the yeah. Sand Shark from Beetlejuice. Yeah. Like, bring that stuff yeah. back, please. He's got to know that we want it, yeah. you know, <laughs> someone just let him do it. Cause he's got to know. Yeah. He's got to know. <laughs> well, right on. Did you have uh, any others that you wanted to mention? Other influences? Um, there's so, there's so many. I, I think that when we, um, and I kind of like dovetail on things that you had mentioned as well, you know, when, when Jason said, this is a B horror movie and it's Val Luton, um, this kind of, deep dive into the world of Val Luton was, was really lovely and exciting. And so you have the body snatchers and you have, uh, uh, Isle of the dead. Um, mm. and, and then specifically curse of the cat people and this stuff that's sort of using German expressionism and, uh, um, but also taking genre and turning it into poetry and, and something mm-hmm. profound and something deeper. And, right. um, you know, the, the, I guess the story of, of Val Luton at RKO is, is even if the studio got frustrated with him, he was kind of given permission to, uh, yeah, just, you know, as long as it's a sequel to Cat People, like, do whatever you want. Like, like <laughs> as long as it has this title and this poster, you know, run with it. And he wanted to, to take genre and turn it into art. And um, very explicitly, obviously, the body snatchers, you know, they're digging up a body at the end and it's raining, right, which is Frankenstein, right. too. 
And, sure. Um, which is a trope, like the cinematic trope of the of the the midnight exhumation in a pool. Well, I think you know. I think it, it I think it by law has to be raining while you're digging up a body, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's just how it goes. Of course, and and then there's the sense too of you know like like okay, we're watching something you know that feels. It's it's rain and it's cinematic and it feels familiar, but I also can't believe that I'm feeling some emotion at the same time. And that's how you you know that's the exciting flip or the magic trip trick when it works and for whom it works. And you know, does that rain become other things? What is the is that rain purification? I don't know. Is that rain and and strange influence here? You know, uh, um, like Solaris uh, Mm. and that last you know Solaris might as well be a metaphor for for filmmaking it's like here's this planet that takes emotions and turns them into manifested things right <laughs> and <laughs> and i my favorite i don't know if it was kurzawa or I, my favorite thing i'd ever read about solaris was the sense of of that rain at the end it's raining on the planet now and that that rain is tears it, like it took the sadness and it turned it into rain <laughs> like, right, right right um and so can you take that trope it has to be raining in a cemetery. Of course it does. <laughs> you know, it's in Frankenstein. It's in young Frankenstein. <laughs> it's in yeah, Sam right. Raimi, you know, drag me to hell. Uh, you take, you take those, that trope, and then you try to find the poetry in it. Um, and I think that Val Luton is one of the, the predecessors of, and forward thinkers of that. And you take, you know, something like Curse, Curse of the Cat People, and it becomes this, this meditation on, on, childhood trauma and the deep dark emotions of childhood and it becomes used it it disappoints audiences but it becomes used in psychology classes to this day (laughs) as this Mm. examination of of uh child child psychology um through a ghost story through through genre and i you know it's it's this it was this hope and dream that we had for the movie like like can to dust be a midnight movie can to dust be big Lebowski in some regard and also be find a home with grief counselors. And, um, uh, there's this beautiful, uh, movement happening that that's been dubbed the death positive movement about, you know, how do we as a culture re, uh, uh, calibrate our relationship to, to death. And Mm. there's this Institute in New York called the art of dying Institute. And these folks out in LA who have this, this green funeral home, um, and this this uh, nonprofit called the Order of the Good Death, and the movie's starting to find a home with them. Uh, they oh, nice. they teach than- thanatology, which is the you know how folks who are death workers and how you work with death and how you work with with someone who's dying and and grief counselors. And there's uh, you know does this movie find its home in the in in the Jewish world? There's the Chevra Kadisha, which is the Jewish burial society. Geza Rorig, our actor from from Son of Saul, is actually a member of of a Chevra Kadisha. Um, mm. And you would think that perhaps, you know, there's folks who this, there's, there's Orthodox or, or, or there's Jewish folks who this movie might offend, but we found this home with, we're going to be screening at a, uh, Hevra Kadisha convention in Denver <laughs> over the summer. <laughs> and there's this sense of, yeah, if you're there, you know, you could re- you could think it's offensive, but if you're there spiritually doing one of the most selfless and holy acts of Judaism, which is to prepare a dead body. Yeah. Um, and you get this movie, <laughs> like not as offensive, but as speaking to your work and the and the spiritual profundity of that. So there's that sense of like, like can this movie be? You know, I, I've 
uh, a friend's father who who was a Christian pastor who worked in uh, who was a teacher and who worked in a um, a hospital for most of his life, helping families through their grief and teaches about grief and uh, counseling to young clergy. Uh, saw this film and said, "This film is so psychologically true to my understanding of grief." And so that sense of like, yeah, can yeah, can it be a stoner comedy? <laughs> <laughs> and this other thing and and that's exciting to me that that our ultimate hope and dream for it you know uh, like it's starting to pan out and starting to find those strange homes and it's a niche film right and and i hope that sure. that in the vod world and in its home entertainment afterlife it, it perhaps finds you know more of an audience than it was allowed to or able to find in, in the theaters and i'm so grateful that we had this beautiful theatrical run and that our distributor good deed believed in it in that way um, yeah. But you hope that in these bizarre long tales and afterlifes of the film itself, that, that, you know, it can do both those things. And I think that Val Luton is a predecessor of, of that to some extent. Um, and then you also look at, I don't know, uh, other folks who have done that. Well, well, then you look at the, the Dybbuk, the movie. And I could mm-hmm. go on for 45 minutes about the beauty in that and the, and the poetry of that and the way in which that genre like feels like Val Luton and it's taking the Dybbuk and turning it into a metaphor for grief in 1937 in Yiddish. Um, <laughs> and, and how that became an influence and actually incorporated into our movie and so ahead of its time for doing that. But then you look at things like the Babadook, um, yeah. which, you know, it's obviously a metaphor for grief, but it's not until that final scene where it where it takes horror and turns it into that poetry. Sure, sure, yeah. And I where it finally brings it in. Yeah, and and I look at I don't, you know, again, it could go on forever and just like love to throw out all the influences, but you look at Altman doing that mm-hmm. with McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Like here's a western and then in the last 5 minutes it's transfigured into poetry <laughs> in this way that it hadn't felt, you know, for the rest of 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 the movie. So those are I don't know. Those are spiritual influences uh, for the film. I um, I think in that same in that same realm and in that same era, there there is this this night of the hunter ness to hmm. it. You know, there was a vision of the movie you know, at some point that that quickly got got put aside about the movie actually being in black and white, but hmm. also ways in which we can still evoke that. Like you know, when and actually in cooler ways. Like once you're embracing color the nights can start to feel increasingly black and white and what are shadows doing, you know, and there's, there's shots like the, the shot, the silhouettes of the, of the farm when Shmuel is stealing the pig. Oh yeah. Which, yeah. You know, some feel, really cool shots. Feel yeah. night of the hunter ish and trying to throw, throw nods in that direction. But I do think that night of the hunter feels, this feels simultaneously real, even in the way that it starts kind of handheldy and, and, but it also feels folkloric and fairy tale like, mm. And the way in which to dust is trying to walk that line between it's, it's, it's real. And it's, you know, you can't ever, ever peg, is this a period piece? Is it not a period piece? When does this take place? And it's clearly in, in a modern world because we're dealing with a modern science, but that it is allowed to be uh, n- knocked into the folkloric realm. It's sort of modern folklore. And sure. And I think about you know in the literary world, kind of, and specifically the Jewish world and, and Jewish mysticism in modern settings and um, sort of postmodern Jewish mystical tales of Isaac Pasheva Singer and and can you have that stuff that it feels recognizably real but it also feels heightened? Right, right. That's true of of 
you know, of, of what we were talking about with Down by Law. Yeah. And Jarmish as well. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I could, I could dig, dig, uh, deep and then talk about shots and, <laughs> and those those fun little you know like i'll always lay those those references in there just because they're superfluous and fun <laughs> and individual things but i feel like we're hitting the the big ones on the thematic end I, at least i think so too you know and speaking of which you know i think that we've kind of hit the main things uh but i do have one question for you uh and, and then we'll probably wrap it up here uh, and that final question is, was it always Jethro Tull? It was always Jethro Tull in the same way that it was always a stop motion toe. I don't know <laughs> where these things come from. You know, <laughs> like I, I had a, uh, an older cousin who, uh, loved Jethro Tull, who I loved and admired. And, um, uh, Albert is not necessarily in any way like him. And yet somehow, like, I was like, what's he listening to? It's Jethro Tull. <laughs> it's clearly, you know, and there would have, you know, if I'm so grateful to our producers, uh, Emily Mortimer, Alessandra Navola, Ron Perlman, um, uh, of the, you know, the, the, the celebrity producers, and then Josh Crook, Scott Lachmas, these producers who fought, uh, and music supervisors who, who fought these good fights to get us a movie of our size and budget to be able to use both Tom Waits and Jethro Tull. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, there'd be more Jethro Tull in the movie <laughs> if it wasn't, you know, <laughs> so expensive oh, sure. to have simply used Aqualung almost in its entirety. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. Well, right on, uh, Sean. Seriously, this has been so great. Uh, thank you so much for doing it. And, uh, you know, now that the film's on VOD, I I really do think it's going to find an even bigger audience. Um, you know, it, it's 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 a great movie. So so unique and, and, and well done and great performances. And uh, I, I'm just really happy that you uh, were able to make the time to do this interview. I uh, had a great time. And uh, yeah, I just want to thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I'm, I'm so happy and grateful that, that you guys um, found it, that you guys uh, uh, were compelled <laughs> enough to track it down for the week that it played wherever you are. Yeah. Yeah. One, <laughs> like, one week in the theaters here, but we, we um, were there. <laughs> and it's, yeah. And it's such a, it's such an honor and it was a, it was a, a joy and quite humbling to hear you guys talk about it and quite exciting to, to, um, you know, you, you find that it works in ways that you want it to work and you find that people are taking their own thing out of it and that's all you can hope for. So, so thank you guys for, uh, for, uh, you know, liking the movie and, and dissecting it <laughs> in a beautiful, loving way. So <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much, man. Welcome to the world's first podcast. Well, the first one they've done. Gas Money Pictures presents Filmmakers On, a podcast for filmmakers by filmmakers about the ever-changing media landscape. Each Thursday, hosts Jay Horton and Sean Alden Reed speak to a media insider about their journey through the industry and how to survive without going crazy. Segments like What Are You Watching, Media Roundup, and It's Your Turn give Jay and Sean the opportunity to do their favorite thing discuss what's going on in movies tv and media and mainly disagree filmmakers on is available on your favorite podcasting app or at www.filmmakerson.com and check them out on social media at filmmakers on 
Yeah. That was a great conversation, right? Man, thanks so much to Sean Snyder for being here. Um, I'm just so glad that it went so well like that. I mean, I, you know, I told you on the last episode, I loved this movie. And so to have him on was great. Uh, and I'm really glad it sounded like he had a great time, too. So uh, that does it for now. We're going to be back with a whole lot more Piecing It Together coming up this Friday and then continuing. I think we got two episodes for next week, although don't quote me because it might just be one, but it might be two. We'll see what happens. And uh, you should all make sure that you are subscribed to Piecing It Together on your podcast app of choice. You should also follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, a movie discussion group where we continue the conversations about all these movies and puzzle pieces. And uh, you know what? If you really want, we actually have a Patreon now. Patreon.com slash PiecingPod. You can sign up for it. I don't know what you're going to get at this point, but you'll be supporting the show. You really don't have to sign up. But if you really want to sign up, sign up. That would be kind of cool. Anything you put into it, it's just going to go back into making the show better and bigger. So, you know, whatever. If you really enjoy it, go for it. Why not? You can also rate and review us on iTunes. I'm just telling you all this stuff that you can do if you enjoy what you hear on Piecing It Together. So, that about does it for today. Uh, I'm going to leave you guys with a piece of music, as I always do. And I talked about on the uh, previous episode about my stop-motion animation music video, Back Into the Dark, which uh, came up when I was searching for cool, dark, stop-motion animation videos after uh, researching To Dust. And, uh, yeah, I might as well play that song, right? So Back Into the Dark is a track from my third album, Head Like Fire. And the music video is just this super cool stop-motion animated horror music video thing that came out a couple years ago, got into like 14 film festivals, won a bunch of awards. It's something I'm super proud of. And uh, hope you dig it. So let's go with Back Into the Dark, and we'll be back with more Piecing It Together coming up.
and all points west. Thank you.